All right. Um, I guess I, I, I wasn't exactly sure how to set this up because I'm doing sort of a two-part series that should be that I actually just preached this past semester in 12 weeks. So there's no way to do this. I'm, I'm preaching. I preached in RUF on relationships. And I wanted us to just look at uh, how relationships and how uh, affect us and how we should think about them as, as a body. As I've gone through this, it's easy to talk to my students about it, but it's also been very easy for me to think about how there have been things that I've looked at, things that we've looked at in the scriptures that I think are needful for us as, as a body, as a church. And so let me just say a couple things at the, at the outset. Um... This is going to be primarily directed at relationships in general. Um, but I am, because I can't help it, I'm going to step out of relationships in general and speak to re- some specific aspects of relationships. And I do that um, for maybe those of you in here who are teenagers and you're thinking about dating and what that might look like in your life, dating and marriage. And for those of you who are parents who um, are, have teenagers or young ones, and you think about how to instruct them toward their, their specific needs in terms of marriage relationships. So I'm going to, uh, we're thinking generally, I'm going to ask you to join in with me and try to make some of these connections because in some sense, uh, when I'm, uh, uh, all of these things relate to all of us. And I just want you to hear me to say, say that from the beginning. So I I guess the first thing that we need to look at is, what is the state of things? Where are we as a people? Where are we in terms of our thinking about relationships? In an article by um, Peter Berkowitz from the Atlantic Monthly, it's a bit dated. Uh, It was back in 2000. Uh, he He wrote an article called Wooed by Freedom. And in this article, he's looking at uh, relationships in terms of romance. And he's stepping back, and what he's doing is he's assessing the culture's view of romance and relationship based on uh, themes in film. And how romance is looked at in in sort of the, the ebbs and flows of film and pop culture, but most specifically film. And so he goes back to the days of Casablanca up through um, when Harry met Sally and, and how our culture looks at romantic relationship. And here's his conclusion. He says uh, he, his conclusion is basically that we both overvalue and romanticize relationships and we also undervalue and we're cynical about relationships. It's not really all that profound, right? It's really easy to say we do both. It's both and, right? It's always both and. We both overvalue, we romanticize relationships, and we're cynical. And if we were to survey pop culture today, we could see that. We could see where uh, even uh, family is looked at in sort of a, a romantic, romanticized way, or we look at uh, pop culture where family is looked at in, in, um, in a, a cynical way. Maybe mostly cynical in terms of family, though uh, there are certainly examples where family is romanticized, maybe especially in the church. But either way, I think both of these exist among us. We romanticize relationship and we're cynical about relationships. We're both. Both of those things are present among us. 
And our passage today, I think, begins to maybe clear a way out. At least what I hope uh, for it to do is for us to begin to think about what it would look like to have a biblical view of relationship. Where we would go, what we would look for, the kinds of things that we would embrace in order to understand the Bible's view of relationship. And with that, I ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, starting in verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the heaven, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man and said, This is last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Please be seated. Dear Holy Father, we thank you that you have sent your word uh, to correct us. Uh, to point us to the mystery of your salvation. We pray that you would use it by the power of your spirit for the sake of your people this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so within the church, uh, I've set it up for us. Our, our view of relationship falls on both sides, and I think we all sort of struggle with both sides of this, an overly romanticized view of relationship and, and a cynical view of relationship. 
Um, oftentimes, what, to be honest, um, my view of this is that those two things are not really uh, distinguishable. Typically, we're cynical because we have an overly romanticized view of the way things should be. And when it doesn't work out the way we think it should be in our overly romanticized view of things, then we become cynical about those things. Uh, it's just, it's, it's the way we operate. But among us, uh, I, I would uh, wonder if even in the church, I would say here, we have a high value placed on family, community, marriage. But I also wonder if there's not many among us who struggle with deep disappointment over broken relationships. Over lost relationships. Uh, uh, do you mourn uh, that, that things are not the way you thought they would be? Maybe in this room. That we live in this sort of hope for. And maybe you're, you're at the place where you think, I'm not doing this anymore. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, I'll give one more church a try. But if this doesn't work out, I'm done. I'm done with the church. It's killing me. And here's what I think happens here in terms of the church's view of relationship. We... Um, we take it so seriously. It's something that is on our minds. It's something we actually talk about. It's something we're pushed toward. And we, as we move into uh, relationships, and, and specifically, again, we're talking about both generally relationships and marriage specifically, we take it so seriously that when things don't go our way, we get frustrated and deeply disappointed. Or we take it so seriously, we think it's so important. Again, parents, when you think about your children and what it looks like for them to enter into a relationship with somebody in the future towards marriage, do you take it so seriously that really the way you teach them about it and the way you think about your model for dating or courtship is really just driven by fear? That you really are, are so concerned that it's, that it's so serious that what you shape into your child is, is a sort of fear that if this doesn't go right, then, then all is lost. Maybe we see this on the other side of the coin where some of us are in bad marriages or bad relationships and we don't know how to talk about it. We, we don't know how to enter into the community and, and, and live out the fact that I'm in a bad marriage. We don't know what that would look like to be honest and say that because we're afraid. We're afraid that if our marriage is bad, then we're failures and all is lost. See, sometimes when we take something so seriously, we forget other things. We forget other things that should shape how we think about uh, uh, relationships, how we should think about even our failures. And so we live in fear and we live in hiding. See, to value marriage is good. To overvalue it's a sin. To value relationship is good. To overvalue it's a sin. Single people... Let me, let me just step back and say something. Uh, 
Are you frustrated uh, in the church because what's communicated to you is that you're not quite up to snuff as a Christian until you get married? Church, have you communicated that to the single people among us? That somehow marriage has become uh, the, the mark of what it looks like to be mature as a Christian. And we even push it further than that in the way we think sometimes. We push it into children. So some of us feel the sting of not having children because we feel like we're not spiritual enough for those around us. What I want to say to all of us is that the scriptures are clear about how we should think about relationship, that the scriptures teach us an alternative view between romanticized view between uh, or, or cynicism for getting too much of our hopes built in relationships, a way to enter into them with a sort of realism, an understanding that, that relationships will not satisfy all of our needs, but there's certainly something that are important that we're called to. So let's look at it. What is the alternative What's the alternative? How do the scriptures keep us from becoming hopeless romantics or bitter cynics? And our passage today sets us on this path in terms of creation, right? God said in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What I want you to understand first about uh, this account of the creation of of mankind, of humanity, is that it points uh, to something about God. And and the, the first thing that it points to about God is that at the heart of who God is, is that God is relational. God is, is eternally and, and perfectly in relationship. Let us make man in our image. Now, there's a debate about that plural language. I get that. Among Bible scholars, there's questions about whether this is really a Trinitarian passage. If, I can, um, if I'm hijacking this passage, some would say I'm hijacking it, to see the relational God in that uh, we, us language, the plural language there. And there's three options that tend to be laid out in that language. Uh, the first one is that this is sort of a royal we it's, it's God speaking to his, to, um, I, I, I don't know, as God, but he's, he's, he's not speaking God in terms of plurality, but just a royalty. And that it's really not pointing to some sort of Trinitarian concept of God. The other is that, um, that it's addressing that God in this passage is addressing the royal court. That, that he's, he's um, it's obviously kingly language. It's obviously God speaking as this great king. And, and it's, it's God in, in address to his court, to his heavenly court. But I just want you to just look at the way the language unfolds. The us and our relate, right? So let us make mankind in our image. And then what does he do? He makes humans in his own image, verse 27, in the image of God. 
That that our, us language is pointing to our creation in the image of God, not in the image of the royal court. Just the language itself points that the plural language has to be really located in God himself. Not in the royal court. Because we're told that that us and our comes out and is manifest in mankind being made in the image of God himself. But beyond that, uh, there's language that points us to the relational aspect of God and the relationship uh, that we're, uh, that, 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 that image bearing is meant to reflect that relationship. Uh, the next thing that we just notice here is, if you're not familiar with this story, um, there's formulas by which God creates all the other things in creation. And it's, it's an impersonal let there be. But there's a change in the formula here. It's a very personal change when he says, let us. When he, he begins to speak in this very personal way and he, he announces what he's about to do. And then the last thing we see is that there's a formula in the other days of creation that's changed in the relationship, uh, in, in this creation uh, of humanity. Uh, after God creates the other things in the creation, he, it, it, it just gives the refrain, and it was so. But here, that refrain is left behind for this blessing what one commentator calls a threefold blessing, this be fruitful. God blesses them and he tells them to be fruitful and he calls the earth to give forth fruit and he, he blesses it all. That being created in the image of God means first and foremost that you are created to be in relationship as God has always been in relationship. That God is a relational God, that he's, he is a, um, a, a being that has always been in this kind of uh, relationship that he has now made us in the image of. And John 17, if I've uh, proved too much from Genesis, we'll just jump ahead a little bit, just briefly, and look at how Jesus conceives of God before creation. This is what he says as he's praying for his disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe through their word, including the church today. This is verse 20. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent us. That they may be one, even as we are one. Then he goes on to say, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me. Because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which, with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That Jesus obviously understands and looks to his relationship with the Father and he pushes it back before creation. And under to understand what we're called into as the people of God is, we are under is to understand that we're called as image bearers and that means we are deeply, deeply relational. 
There is no getting around it because God the Father is deeply relational. He has been for all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the misconceptions about why God uh, created human, uh, humanity uh, uh, was it revolves around this. Some people think that God was somehow alone, needy. That's actually not the scripture's view of God before all time. God was perfectly happy, fulfilled, satisfied in relationships. Our God is a relational God. The way one person says this then about us is God did not create us to get from us the cosmic infinite joy of mutual love and glorification but to share it with us. That we're called to be image bearers and to share in the relationship of love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have shared for all eternity. So let's press on. At the heart of image bearing, I've said this now, is reflecting God. Let us make man in our image Let us make them to reflect us. Let us make them to look like us. Let us make them to uh, show uh, us forth on the earth. And part of that, or not even the part of that, at the heart of it is relationship. Verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. It's this singular uh, uh, person or this singular kind of concept of mankind. But then he breaks it down into the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. That there's this uh, relational aspect. There's this otherness that is a part of mankind and the creation as God designed it. And then verse 18 of chapter 2 makes it even more clear. When God says something that's startling. If you're familiar with the Genesis account or not familiar with the Genesis account, every time up to this point when God has said something, he's created something, he's, he's spoken it into existence, he said that it's good. And I made this point a few weeks ago when I preached on, uh, on friendship that this is one of the most startling passages, verses in all the scriptures where God says it is not good that man should be alone. When, when God looks at Adam existing in his, uh, um, in his individual calling, and God says, that's not good. Now let me, let me step back and say something here. Um, scholars look at these two accounts and see a great contradiction or they actually see a a really bad job of editing because there's this um, uh, Genesis account where God speaks all things into existence and then uh, some other editor just takes this other creation account and just jams it together and and, uh, makes an ill fit between these two creation accounts. And the problem with that is that it has no literary uh, thoughtfulness, that it has no understanding of the beauty of literary device. 
Uh, that um, all of the language in Genesis chapter 1 is this majestic, kingly language that God speaks and things happen. And Genesis chapter 2, there's this transition in the language and it turns into this covenant language and everything is, is about this earthiness of God. And it's not two creation accounts that are ill-fitting and been put poorly together. It's this two ways of describing what, what I talked about in my walk down, that God is both majestic, kingly, and he speaks things into existence. And he's also the kind of God that rolls up his sleeves and he fashions things out of the dirt. And it's missing of the beauty of the way the author wanted us to see how God is from both aspects and both angles. But God looks and says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so we have to stop and just remember that this is the garden This is before the fall. This is before any brokenness is entered into the relationship between God and Adam. There is nothing existing, uh, there is nothing lacking in the relationship between Adam and God. And what you have to see is that Adam has created, or that God has created us as represented here in Adam to be in relationship. That it's not enough for you as an individual to live in relationship with God alone. That God did not create you to be satisfied only in Him. Probably a better way to say it is that the only way you can be satisfied only in God is through relationships with other people. That God made you to know and delight in who He is and and is as God for you in the context of relationship with others. It is not good for man to be alone. God speaks this strange statement into the goodness and unbroken reality of creation. That there was something missing and it was relationship. It was another person. It was a person to share in the burdens of life and the call of the kingdom with Adam. Um, there's a illustration of, I think, this innate need that we have, this innate, this way we're made, this creational need. It's a little bit dated, but if y'all have seen the movie Castaway, um, it's a, a story of a guy who works for FedEx. Um, he gets, uh, his plane goes down, he winds up, uh, played by Tom Hanks, winds up on a deserted island. And at one point he's trying to make fire, and he cuts his hand, and gets very, very angry. And y'all, if you've seen it, you know what he does, right? He picks up the volleyball. That, that all, um, Part of what happens is the plane goes down and a bunch of stuff, uh, FedEx stuff, washes up on the land. He hits the volleyball and he leaves a, a, a handprint, a bloody handprint on it that looks like a face. He makes a face out of it. And so this Wilson volleyball becomes Wilson, his friend. His only friend on the island. And he talks to it. At one point they get in an argument because I guess Wilson's nagging him about something. Um, and it's, it's this interesting thing where, uh, um, the, the, the movie picks up on the fact that no man can live on an island. No man can do that. And, and if, if that was where we were, even though some of us seek solitude, uh, there is nothing healthy about that. And eventually we will find something to substitute because we were made for a relationship. And somewhere along the, uh, in the movie, uh, he get, he, he makes a raft and Wilson floats away. 
And it, we, we all cry, right? Because Wilson's lost to sea. We can't believe Tom Hanks has let his friend float away. All right, if you want something maybe a little more scholarly. Miroslav Volf says this. Because the Christian God is not a lonely God, but rather a communion of three persons, faith leads human beings into the divine communio. One cannot, however, have a self-enclosed communion with a triune God, a quote-unquote foursome as it were. For the Christian God is not a private deity. Communion with this God is at once also communion with others who have entrusted themselves in faith to the same God. Hence, one and the same act of faith places a person into a new relationship both with God and with others who stand in communion with God. So you cannot have relationship with God without having relationships here this morning. Here in the church of Jesus Christ, here in the visible expression of his people. This is what we mean when we talk about covenant, is that it binds us together in relationship. The next thing I want us to see about those relationships, first thing, is that God is eternally a relational God. Second thing is that we're made in His image, meaning we must be in relationships. Thirdly, is that these relationships were never intended to be an end and of themselves. And see, this is where I think, if I can step back to the way we talk about marriage in the church, is we make marriage the landing point. I can actually remember a conversation. I don't know how many years ago this would make it, but it was the last time Christmas fell on Sunday. And the conversation was essentially, I can't believe they're having church on Christmas. Don't they know Christmas is about family? This was Christians that we were talking among. And I don't mean to ridicule. I think that actually is probably a good indicator of how a lot of us think about family. That we set family, by the way, what this means, what, what this means about uh, being joined to the people of God, and, and I, I, I could trace out the implications of this later on, I don't have time to do this, but part of what it means to be called in this community uh, it, that the scriptures teaches us is that your primary relationship is, is not you, is not God, family, country, it's actually God, the church of Jesus Christ, and then your family. That, that actually the primary relationship into which you are called is the relationship with God's people. This is what it means in some ways uh, as children and when, it, when it talks about later on in Genesis chapter 2, leaving and cleaving. Is that the more important thing is that what you are called into as, in, in marriage in terms of the kingdom of God, not in terms of blood relatives. But even more personally is in terms of your calling in the kingdom of God, in terms of your family. Now, please hear me. You don't get to neglect your family and blame Jesus for it. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. 
Some people have done it. I know people who do that. That is not the point here. But the point here is that serving the kingdom and this people is what you're called to. The idea of rule in verse 28 of chapter 1 uh, gets this idea that um, God blesses them after he creates them. And he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea. That they're not created to be man and uh, husband and wife or male and female existing in a relationship in and of itself. But that relationship was created and designed to have an end somewhere else. And that end somewhere else is always the kingdom of God. Always. We get this in, in chapter 2 where it, it, we're so told that it's not good for Adam to be alone. So he needs a helper. Suitable. Suitable for what? Suitable for his kingdom task. Suitable for what he's been called to. Uh, in the immediate context, it's just the naming of the animals. It's just exercising dominion. That word helper is not a word of employee or even co-worker. It's a word of companionship, of being called jointly into the mission of God. It's being called together, side by side, um, toward the same purpose and calling. By the way, one of the practical applications of this means husbands and wives are both fully, equally called to participate In the kingdom of God. That it's companionship. Men, your wives don't work for you. And we often look at relationships. um, And and marriage relationships as uh, this sort of greater, lesser thing. But what God's saying here is that Adam cannot do his work. Fulfill his calling without someone else without help, without a companion, without someone who is in it with him. See, we were made for relationships because God is relational. We were made for relationships um, to reflect God and to build the kingdom. And there's this ideal that's set forth in the Bible um, that we are called to, and yet I've set it up for us from the beginning, we all know that there's something wrong. We all know that there's something broken. We all have our own doubts and disappointments. I have mine. You may have them about me, about what you thought would happen when I got here that didn't. Or the kind of friend I would be. Or how often I would call. And I tell you that there is no getting around the fact that God has made us this way. This is what we're called to. And there's something deeply broken about it. I don't have time to go through the passage. But Adam and Eve fall. This um, passage that ends with they were uh, in Genesis chapter 2. That says they were naked and not ashamed. Uh, One commentator says that that's not just a setup for what happens in the fall of Adam and Eve. But a setup for the whole rest of the Bible. And so we have this broken relationship between husband and wife. And in Genesis chapter 4, we have broken relationship between brothers. And from there on out, we have broken relationships between man, uh, from nations. 
Then it just, this ripple effect that, that, that moves out from Genesis chapter 3 and relationships on small scales and grand scales become deeply broken and fractured. Dominion, together, a shared companionship uh, moving toward the kingdom of God moves toward domination, right? You sure your desire shall be for your husband, but he will rule over you. It's a difficult uh, passage to interpret, but whatever it means specifically, it ain't good. It's not the way it was meant to be. I know we don't say it, I'm sorry. Dominion shifts to domination, and it also shifts to frustration. That the very blessing, this very work we are called to, this very kingdom idea that we're called to join in together is frustrated now because we're broken and relationship is broken, and the very thing that we're operating in, the soil, is, is, is there's this fractured interaction with. And so we live either in cynicism or we fight for some romantic ideal that doesn't exist. Some of us are really afraid of the topic of relationship because of our relational history. Not only do we not like to look back and see the trail of broken relationships behind us, but we know that everybody else can. Some of us are afraid of it because of our present relational situation. There's something deeply wrong and we don't know how to fix it and we're afraid that all will be lost. Some of us are afraid of it because of um, our own particular sin, sexual sin. Maybe we've uh, been abused. Maybe we've abused others. Maybe we just don't know how to get out of where we are. Maybe we're afraid of making a mistake. Maybe we think the ultimate ill for any one of us or our children to ever get into would be a bad marriage. Some of us are in a struggling marriage. Some of us are single and want to be married. And we don't know what that would look like. And so we live in this state of sort of managed relationships. We keep other at arm's length. We don't let people in. We don't really see ourselves as need. We isolate ourselves uh, to our family. We find places of safety and we don't move out into the kingdom together because we're afraid. And here's what I want you to see. And this is not really a shoehorning in of the advent to the topic of relationship. Is that Jesus came to bring restoration to relationship. That really at the heart of the Trinity, at the heart of image bearing, and at the heart of redemption is relationship. That the broken things of our lives Jesus entered into, he came so that he might bring restoration and healing. And let me just look briefly 
at the announcement of this coming king. Matthew, in his telling of the genealogy, talks, uh, is arranging it around the kingship of Christ. Not as uh, Luke seems to emphasize his Jewish heritage. Matthew wants to emphasize his Davidic heritage, his kingship. And this is how Matthew tells the story. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. By the way, there's a lot of relational messiness already, right? And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Yikes. Just go read it. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I love that phrase, the wife of Uriah. I love it. And Matthew puts it there for a very specific reason. Not David, the wife of uh, Solomon by the wife of David. The wife of Uriah is um, a marker to Everyone who would have heard this announcement, who knew their Old Testament, who knew the story of King David, it would have been like a, a, a flashing sign. It's the kind of thing that when we tell our stories of our family lineage, we would not really want to highlight. It's, the, it's a way of marking out that Jesus has come as the king by the way of adultery. By the way of deeply, deeply broken relationship. By the way of murder and deceit and manipulation. By the way of the things that we are running from and deeply afraid of. By the things that we don't want our children to ever experience in their lives. And what we see is that Jesus is not afraid to identify with everything that's true about you and your brokenness. Every bit of, the, uh, of who you are and what you wish you could hide, you wish no one would knew, you wish wasn't in your past, w- Jesus shows that he is not afraid to identify with. That in his coming, he has come to be with people like you and like me. And until we understand that Jesus knows our relational brokenness and he enters into our relational brokenness and he bumps elbows and rubs shoulders with it, until we begin to see that, we will not know how to relate to others. We will not know how to relate to our spouses. We will not know how to date or court or whatever you call it. See, the beauty of the advent is that it's not just this beautiful story of this God who comes to earth, but it's this beautiful story of a God who identifies with what's wrong with you. Down to the deepest broken part. And that it's also about a Savior who will take the story of Tamar And Rahab and Judah and Isaac and Bathsheba and David and weave it into a story of his kingdom.
that your story, whatever it is, is the story around which God is telling the work of his kingdom now. And your calling is to share it with us. To be, our compa- to be a companion alongside of us as we fulfill our calling together. Amen.